I love it that it's called the book of Acts. It's not called the book of intentions. It's not called the book of thoughts or the book of methods. It's called the book of Acts. It describes and chronicles the acts of the apostles. It records the events and the working of God through those who knew Him and loved Him and were commissioned to go out and share. It is an, it is an exciting book. It is full of adventure. It is amazing. And, and I'm reminded again this morning, it's called the book of Acts. Let our faith also be an active faith. In chapters 1 and 2, we find something awesome happening to the early church. And no doubt, it played a tremendous role, instrumental role, in the spread of the gospel throughout all the world. You see, in the close of the gospels, Jesus told his disciples that I want you to take this message, everything you have heard of me, and I want you to spread it out to every nation in the world. I want you to go viral with this message. I want it to go to every people group, every tribe, every tongue. Take what you have learned from me and share that. Communicate it to others. Make disciples is what Jesus said. And in Acts chapter 2, we find that something happened as the believers were all gathered together in this large upper room. The day of Pentecost had fully come. And the Bible tells us that God sent His Holy Spirit and infused, empowered those believers. They began to speak in tongues. And those tongues in that time, at that moment, were tongues that were representative of the people who were out there. All of these different cultures, all of these different nations, all of these different tongues were represented out at that group in Jerusalem. And these men, empowered, and women empowered by the Holy Spirit, began to communicate the gospel in the language of those that were represented. And it wasn't just that gift of tongues that was provided for them. It gave them power and boldness in their message and in their witness. In fact, in chapter 3, what we find is that Peter and John are going to the temple in the early afternoon. And as they're going up there, there's a lame man who's been set down there by the gate called Beautiful. And this man is wanting money from people. That's how he made his living. He couldn't work, so he was asking for charitable donations from people who would pass by. And this man comes over and he sees Peter and John and he asks money from them. And they tell them, silver and gold, I don't have. But they say, what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the Bible says right then that that man rose up and began to walk. No doubt that being a busy place, no doubt that being a busy time for the evening sacrifice, all of these people had seen this man who had been continually laid at that gate, who had seen that lame man sitting there day after day after day, and yet now they see him by the power of God rise up and walk. <coughs> Peter uses that opportunity, that stir among the people to see this great miracle. He uses that as an opportunity to preach the gospel. He shares with them what Jesus Christ did, who He was. Use that crowd that already had their attention and share the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thousands of souls were saved. In fact, in his first two sermons, Peter led 8,000 people to Jesus Christ. First two sermons, that's a pretty good record, isn't it? Your first two sermons out of the chute and 8,000 people come to faith in Christ. 
Of course, as, as no good deed goes unnoticed or unpunished in this case, the religious leaders see the stir, they see all that's going on and the commotion, and they hear that these men are preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And the people that are upset are the people who oversaw the council that put Jesus to death, that was instrumental in the crucifixion. So they bring them in. They gather up Peter and John and they bring the lame man in and they're, they're interrogating them and they're telling them to be quiet, to not preach the name of Jesus. But I want to read to you in chapter 4 of Acts, I want to read to you what these religious leaders, what they saw in Peter and John. Look in chapter 4 of Acts, verse 13. <coughs> now when they, the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. Let me read that last part to you. They marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. Two Two things could be implied here. When we read that and we understand that this council brings them in, is interrogating them, is trying to put, them, put their silence, their message, the Bible tells us that there were things they did notice that these men had not gone through the rabbinical school. These men were, according to them and their standards, they were religious nobodies. They didn't go to school with any of the rabbis. They hadn't gone through any of the, the uh, prestigious religious schools of the day. These men seemed to be just literally religious nobodies that are out there just speaking about Jesus. So they noticed that these men had not any religious background beyond what they would have normally learned in their Jewish school growing up. They noticed that they had not learned, that they had not gone advanced their education much past their temple uh, education that they would have received, which was standard and mandatory for males of that age. So they look out at them and they're thinking, wait a second, we don't know these guys, but there's one thing we do know. There's one thing that, that, that we have come to find out, and it is that they have been with Jesus. And there are only two ways we can interpret that. There are only two things, really, that we can take away from that. And one is, in their interrogation of these men, they may have, been able to bring someone in that says, wait a second, I know this guy. I know that guy too. Yeah, they had been at the temple before. They may have had somebody in there, and even them as religious leaders who spent about a, a, a tremendous amount of time in the temple, they probably could have said, yeah, yeah, you look familiar. You were with Jesus. You were one of his followers. That could have been what they meant when they said that they realized that they had been with Jesus. The proximity. The fact that they had been seen in location with Jesus in the temple before. Or, it could have meant something different. It could have meant this. That they had looked at these men and saw the boldness. And saw that they had no official, rabbinical, religious leader training of the day. And to rationalize the power of what they had just seen in that miracle. To rationalize the fact that they were bold in standing up in front of the same council that oversaw the death of Jesus. 
and to be and, and to be like Isaiah and Ezekiel, whose faces were like flint with such boldness to stand in front of those men. It could be that it had nothing or very little to do with their proximity to Jesus, but everything about them sharing the personality of Jesus. The fact that these men looked and acted and walked and lived, thank you, like Jesus. I want to take you back for a moment. I want you to look, consider in the story that I shared with you, some of the things that they would have had to have gone off of in their determination that would have helped them to realize that Peter looked like Jesus. But let me just say this really quick. If you go back and study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are not very flattering to Peter. The Gospels don't pull any punches. If somebody messed up, it's included. If somebody didn't demonstrate faith or, 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 or really demonstrated a worldly, carnally, carnal, sinful attitude, it's recorded. We get that. We see that. And you know, if you think about it, the Gospels are not so incredibly kind to Peter in that they demonstrate, they show, they reveal, they record his failures. And if you really put your mind to it, there are very few moments in the Gospels where Peter looked like Jesus when he was with Jesus. There are by far more times where Jesus, in his three and a half years that he had with him, was having to correct the worldly attitudes, was having to, to bring them back on track with kingdom thinking, was, in, was continuing to have to, to pull the reins on Peter and, and the others to redirect their thoughts and, and get them back where they needed to go. There are by far more instances of where Peter did not look like Jesus than when he did look like Jesus. But I want you to think about something. Earlier on in the book of Acts, I told you that he came up on the lame man. And the lame man says, I need some money. Can you give me some money? And Peter's response was, silver and gold we don't have. He's saying, I don't have money. But the one thing I do have is the power of God. And that one thing that I have, I will give you. You know what that tells me about Peter? Peter, the first thing is this. Think about Peter's mind. Peter approached life in the book of Acts. Looking at scenarios, looking at all of the things that were to come in his life through the lens of a powerful, capable God. He knew. He knew. I mean, this is much different than what we found before. Do you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Do you remember it blew Peter's mind when Jesus said, they don't have to go away, you give them something to eat. That blew Peter's mind. How are we ever going to find enough money to buy enough bread for all of these people? There's no way we can do it. Oh, what a change has taken place in the book of Acts. Now Peter sees a man who needs to walk. Peter knows that God is able to do that. And Peter approaches that problem by saying, you know what, I don't have money, but I do have the power of God. And by the name of Jesus Christ, I'm going to command you to rise up and walk. Peter approached life, approached scenarios and situations in life, looking at it through the lens of a powerful, capable God. Church, do we do the same? How often in our life 
whether at our job or, or our recreation time or in our home, how often do we spend fretting and worrying over things that need not to be worried at all because we forget that God has it under control? We often spend our lives complaining and worrying and upset and afraid over things that we don't even need to be worrying about. Jesus told us not to worry about tomorrow. You know why? He's got tomorrow taken care of. He said sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. You just focus on today and you leave tomorrow to me. And when we get tomorrow, don't worry about the next day. I got that one too. We often spend so much time worrying about things and not remembering, not approaching our life, not approaching our decisions, not approaching our needs through that basic foundational understanding that as a child of God, a born-again believer, He knows me. He knows my needs. He knew what I needed before I ever did. And not only does He have that tremendous amount of knowledge, Omniscient, he knows all things. There's nothing that he does not know. He also has the power to bring it about in my life. Wouldn't that be awesome? If you and I in our life, our day-to-day, every day, what we would consider a mundane, humdrum existence that we think, wouldn't that be awesome if we could look at that and start applying the promises of God's power, the reality of His presence, Wouldn't that be awesome if we could be able to approach life saying, you know what, I know God's got it under control. Praying as believers, trusting and knowing the God that we worship, and being able to look at problems and issues through the lens of a God who is powerful and capable. Oftentimes we we fail to realize that. The Bible says that we are by far more value than many sparrows. There's not a bird that falls to the ground, Jesus said, that Our Heavenly Father does not know, and yet we are worth so much more than sparrows. If He is aware of even the bird that falls, how much more aware is He of us and our needs? Notice the second thing in that story of healing the lame man. He really looks like Jesus here. It's His hands. You see, when Peter was walking up to the temple, the time of the evening sacrifice. No doubt there would have been a bit of a hustle and bustle. Busy time in Jerusalem in that season. Also busy time at the temple as people would have been coming from all around villages and towns and even countries to worship. Don't you know that this one man sitting there, lame, needing money, it would have been easy for Peter to just say, ah, you know, ignore him and walk on would have been easy for G- for Peter to have noticed his situation, but not having any money just went right on. No, that's not how Peter worked. It's not how Peter was wired right here. He saw an opportunity to demonstrate the power of God in this man's life, and he was not afraid to get involved. You want to know why the early church was viral, friends? The reason the early church was viral was they knew in order to accomplish the Great Commission, in order to accomplish the Great Commission, they had to engage the world. They knew it. If we're going to teach and train and share all things that we have ever learned, we have got to engage the world. We have to come in contact with other people. We have to verbally engage them. We have to show them love. We have to reach out to them. It would be foolishness 
for us to think that the lost world is going to seek out the gospel. That's never been how it was. It has always been that the gospel seeks out the lost. The early church understood that. Don't be afraid to get dirty. Don't be afraid to cross these social borders. Don't be afraid to go over here to this person who may be dirty or unclean. Don't be afraid to go to this group of people who may have some stigma attached to them. They went out because they had to engage. They literally had to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We often get in our mind in a church. I wonder why we don't have more lost in the church. Tell me where we find a scripture for that. Tell me where we find a scripture of why we don't have more lost people in the church. It's never been the responsibility of the lost to come to the church. It's always been the responsibility of the church to go to the lost. That's always been what it's about. Peter approached problems, looked at situations, looked at people, with this idea of what can God do here? How can God use his power in this situation? Peter was the hands. It wasn't always that way. Do you remember Mark chapter 10 when they started bringing children to Jesus? <laughs> do you remember that? Don't let Lisa hear this, but they were bringing children to Jesus. And do you remember some of the disciples said, hey, hey, and they started rebuking the people that were bringing the children to Jesus. Get away. I have reason to believe personally. I don't know that it actually happened, but I think Peter was one of them that told Bartimaeus to sit down and shut up. And Peter doesn't have the best record about inviting people to Jesus. Church, it's our job to go. We have been commissioned and empowered for the great task of going out into the world, to going to the highways and the hedges and compelling them to come in, but going out to them first the third thing is his mouth it seems as though every time there was a group of people peter's mouth opened i don't mean this in the negative sense please understand i'm not saying this in a, in a negative term but it appears that peter was a gospel opportunist there were people there that a crowd had been drawn. You know what? He used that opportunity to preach Jesus Christ. And he was quite effective at it. As I told you, his first two sermons saw 8,000 folks come to faith in Jesus Christ. I remember a story of D.L. Moody. One of the great evangelists of his day. Had a heart and a burden for lost souls that he made a commitment to God that at least once a day he would talk to somebody about their soul. He would not allow a day to go by where he did not talk to somebody about their soul and their need for Jesus. They were getting ready. They were meeting in Chicago. There was this evangelistic campaign going to be taking place at Moody's Church. It was all about how to bring a crowd, how to share the gospel with a crowd. Before the meeting, D.L. Moody went out on the street corner in front of the church and brought his worship leader and got a little box and D.O. Moody stood up on the box and Ira Sankey began to play music. And before long, there were about a thousand people that had gathered around to hear the music and then listen to D.L. Moody preach. 
Some of the people that were coming for the convention walked up and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm teaching everybody how to draw a crowd as they were getting ready to go into the service to learn how to draw a crowd and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, it was not just his mind. It was not just his hands. It was his mouth. Oftentimes, as believers, that's the part that scares us. We would much rather in our minds say, I would much rather someone be able to see Jesus through my actions than through my mouth. And let me be honest with you. I don't know all of you, and I don't know all of you very well. You all don't know me. You may not all know me that well. But I can tell you on several times on any given day, you can look at me, run into me, and I may not look like Jesus. That's, that's a fact, Jack. <laughs> there are times I don't want people to see me. Because you know what? I really don't have the Christ-like attitude. I asked my wife. Yesterday was one of those. You want to know when I don't get a Christ-like attitude? It's when my lawnmower breaks down. <laughs> Friends, I guess I, I do have a Christ-like attitude. It's like when Jesus overturned the temple tables. That's kind of what I was like when my lawnmower breaks down. But if you think about it, there really aren't that many moments. Do you think somebody is really going to be able to see Jesus in you because you opened the door for him to go into the restaurant? It's a nice gesture. But how does that preach the gospel? How does that demonstrate the life, death, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus? No doubt we need to build relationships. There are some that water, some that plant, some that harvest. I understand that. But friends, let's not just use our actions in place of our mouth. Our mouth is incredibly important. What we say is memorable, personable. Think about that. It's memorable and personable. Those are some of the reasons why we're afraid to speak sometimes. This very strength of using our mouth, the very strength of, of formulating words to communicate to somebody is powerful in that it is memorable and personal. And because those are the strengths are all, also the reasons why we're afraid to do it sometimes. Do not use your actions in place of your mouth. Use your mouth and allow your actions to support what your mouth says. Peter used his mind, his hands, his mouth, and the fourth and final thing, he used his heart. By the way, does anybody else notice this dramatic change with Peter's mouth? The same men that oversaw the crucifixion of their master. They're telling him to be quiet. And you know what Peter says? We can't help but speak of the things that we have both seen and heard. Peter says, I can't stop. Guys, it's almost like a balloon. Peter in the book of Acts, in the early part of the book of Acts, is almost like you blow up a balloon and then you just hold it up here and let it go. That seems to be what is coming out of Peter, that he is so full, that he is so excited, that he is so bold, that he is so convinced about the resurrection of, the, of Jesus Christ that whenever he gets an opportunity, whenever there's a moment, whenever there's a scenario, whenever there are people, he is like that balloon that has been released. The gospel message just flies out. It's compelled. It's pushed out through his life. We, don't, we remember not long ago before this account, Peter found himself following Jesus from afar and stood outside the high priest's palace. And you remember the story. There was a little servant girl that came up to him and said, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? 
my little girl voice. Peter said, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. I've seen you. I'm not. Little servant girl goes and gets a few more servant girls and some other people, and they all come over, so now there's a few more people. And they say, I know you're one of his disciples. I'm not going to do it again. I know you're one of his disciples because your speech agrees to it. Peter says, I call heaven and earth to record me this day that I know not the man that you speak of. Peter, in front of a little girl, said, I don't know him for fear of what would happen to him. But now, something has changed. Peter is standing with his face as flint, bold, before the very ones that oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. And they're telling him to be quiet. And he's saying, I can't. And I won't. Wow. His mind, his hands, his mouth, and his heart. Fourth one. What a boldness. What an incredible boldness Peter had. Friends, I know oftentimes as a pastor, you hear me talk about the Christian's hands. This isn't the first sermon, probably won't be the last. You've heard oftentimes the, for the importance in sermons about, about the Christian's heart and how we need to examine our heart and how we need to check our heart and how we need to cleanse our heart. But you know what? We need, I think, judging off of the culture of today and, and, and the meager results that we see of the gospel in the United States of America, I think maybe we need to stop talking a little less about the heart and start talking a little bit more about another Christian body part that is so incredibly important to being viral, and that's the Christian's backbone. Friends, we need, as Christians, a little bit of spine. We need to be able to say, hey, I know what the Word says, and I know what the world says. And these two are incongruent. These two do not go together, and today I choose to not just believe and obey, but to share and communicate the truth of God's Word and to have backbone in doing it. Friends, I tell you, it's amazing. You read the newspapers, you watch the news, it is incredible. It appears as though the church of God is getting out-persevered by a lost world. Tell me, how how does this happen? The church who has all of the resources of heaven and earth. We have His power, His presence, His personality, His passion infused in us as believers, and yet a lost world seems to propagate their message more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not because the message is bad. And it's not because the world is too powerful. It's because we as Christians have gotten weak in our backbone and have settled and become silent rather than outspoken and bold in the truth that we know. It's not that it doesn't work. It works. We just don't share it. Friends, no wonder... No wonder those men looked and saw that they appeared to be ignorant and untrained men, but there was one thing they noticed. No wonder they looked at those guys and said, they've been with Jesus. You know why? Their head. They knew there was nothing that God couldn't do, and they applied that to every circumstance they faced because of their hands. 
They reached out to the least of these and ministered and initiated a demonstration of love with this lame man whom everybody would have walked by every day. Their heart, their mouth, looking, acting, literally sharing the personality of Jesus Christ. Why? Why such a change? Why Peter that, that denied Christ in front of a servant girl? Why could he now stand before this, this council and boldly proclaim Christ? Why the one Peter who rebuked the people for bringing the kids to Jesus is now telling everybody about Jesus no matter who they were? Really only two things I can think of. One is the infusing of the Holy Spirit that happened at Pentecost. God sent His Spirit to live and dwell in, uh, inside of those believers at that moment. And the good news is, children of God, that once you become born again, you have that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living inside of you. His power, His presence, His personality, His passion inside of you. You, Christian, that believe the gospel and have the Spirit of God living in you are a force to be reckoned with. You are a light that overcomes darkness that's what you are but it wasn't just i don't believe the working of the holy spirit i think it was the fact that peter had seen his leader killed in a brutal fashion marred beyond any other man and that those 12 men who followed him knew that he wasn't just beaten, but he was beaten by men that didn't believe him and didn't like him. And no doubt they saw him on Golgotha stretched out between two thieves. No doubt some of that company would have seen him breathe his last. And no doubt they knew where he was laid in the tomb. But I believe the second thing that caused Peter to be like Jesus, to be this Peter, was that he had seen Jesus alive again. He had seen him alive, had seen him killed, had seen him buried, and saw him alive. Christians, do not forget the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't let it slip out of your mind. Don't bring it back up once a year at this time when the flowers start to, to grow and the trees start to bloom. Hold on to the resurrection every day. Jesus was raised, and praise God, so shall we be. Let me ask you this. Is there a distinction in your life? Really, really simple question. How much different are you than the lost world around you? Does your mind think like the lost world? Do you think like this kingdom or do you think of the kingdom of heaven? How much of a distinction is there between you and darkness? What about your hands? Are you loving the unlovable? Are you going where nobody else is going? Are you doing what nobody else is doing all for the purpose that Christ may be glorified? What about your mouth? We love Jesus the way we say we do in here, then why doesn't it translate out there in all of our other conversations? 
If I truly love Jesus the way I sang about this morning, then it's going to affect my life outside of these four walls. What about my backbone? What about my boldness? Do I really believe the message that I'm singing about? Do I really believe the message? If so, it may not be about us grabbing a hold of the gospel. It may be about the gospel grabbing a hold of us. How much distinction is there in your life? Are you lost? You've never known Christ as your Savior? Most important words probably Peter ever said is in the verse before our text this morning. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other hope for your soul. There's no other back road into heaven. The only way to be able to get into heaven, the only hope you have, friend, is Jesus Christ. Coming to Him, not, 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 not proud, but humble, to say, I'm a sinner, and I stand in need of your forgiveness. And I know you're willing and eager to forgive. Friend, are you quenching the Spirit? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, that we can quench the Spirit of God. We can walk in direct disobedience and defiance to His will and His Word. We can do it. It can happen. It's a real thing. What's the Spirit of God putting on your heart to do? I don't know what it is in specific, but I can tell you overall, it is that you would look and act like Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit is doing. That is what the Spirit is wanting to do. That is what the Spirit is communicating to you. And anything we don't do in that is quenching the Spirit. Did we forget about the resurrection? Have we forgot that that same work that God did in raising His Son is also for each one of us as well, that our Master is not dead and buried. His tomb is not adorned. Praise God, His bones are still on Him and they sit at the right hand of the Father. And someday soon, He's coming back together as church together.